Hallelujah. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Let's remind ourselves of some things that we know. The 12th chapter of Revelation gives us a uh, kind of an overview of God's dealing with the devil and the things that are going on around us. Beginning in verse 1, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. That's talking about the, the land of and the people of Israel. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And the tail, his tail, drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of the brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that she was cast into the earth, that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So you can see very clearly that the Bible starts uh, this chapter in the Bible starts talking about the nation of Israel and Satan working against and, and warring with the people of Israel. But then it goes further than that and indicates to us that it's talking not just about Israel, the nation of Israel or the, the physical descendants of Abraham, <clears throat> but rather the people of God, those who have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And it tells us that everything that we see, everything that's a backdrop for the things that we see going on around us is for Satan's purpose to make war against the people of God, specifically the church. Everything that's happening, all the things that we look at and scratch our head and say, well, why is that taking place? Or how can this be? 
It's all because there's a war going on. And that war is between the devil and the church. Now you may remember that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 when he was at Caesarea Philippi, it was a place of idol worship. There were many idols in that place. It was a place where people came to offer sacrifice to whatever idol or idols and the gods that they represented to worship. But Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter spoke up and said, well, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked him, who do you say I am? Folks, that's always the issue. Who do you say God is? There are those in the body of Christ that say that God is more than others in the body of Christ. And they experience things that others do not. Because it all comes down to one and one thing only, and that is, who do you say he is? The church agrees worldwide that Jesus is the Savior, but is that all he is? The Bible says he's the healer. Is he the healer to you? Is he anything more than the Savior? The Bible talks about the delivering power of God to provide provision and protection. Well, is, that, is he that to you? You decide. When Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? It all comes down to a personal choice. So Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him and said, blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. Even though he's seen the miracles... Peter was there when Jesus turned the water into wine. Peter was there when Jesus was transfigured and Moses and Elijah appeared to him. Peter was there when Jesus performed all of the healing miracles that the Bible records. All those are physical manifestations, any one of which could have, and in my opinion should have, convinced somebody that Jesus was who he claimed to be. but it still came down to the personal choice. Who do you say I am? Who is Jesus to you? Jesus went on to commend Peter for his answer. He said, upon this rock, certainly not Peter. Peter wasn't a rock. I think the reason the Bible tells us more about Peter's wishy-washiness going back and forth on things because of the statement that Jesus makes about the rock being the foundation of the church. But the rock he's talking about is the knowledge of who he is. And Jesus said, upon this rock I'll build my church. Upon this rock I'll build my church. I'm so glad it's God's responsibility to build the church and not mine or yours. Amen. Amen. But how is he going to build his house? What method is God going to use or is Jesus using to build his church? Well, he went on to tell the disciples, I'll give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So if you put those things together, folks, Jesus is saying, I'll build the church on the knowledge that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. 
But it still comes down to the church exercising her authority. I'll build my church. But the rock, the foundation of the church, which is accomplished by who Jesus is and what he's done for us, still comes down to the authority of the church. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You initiate the action. Heaven will back you up. Now, if you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Jesus is questioned by his disciples about things concerning the end of time. I'm going to start in verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. We know that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And it was taken apart brick by brick, block by block. There was not one stone left upon another. Just as Jesus said. And the specific detail that he goes into is just fascinating to me. Jesus didn't just tell them the temple will be destroyed. He told them specifically about how it would be taken apart. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Folks, the most important thing that Jesus talked about concerning the last days is to avoid being deceived. And notice how he says it. Take heed that no man deceive you. Again, it's up to us. Whether or not we're going to be deceived depends on us. So Jesus said, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation. The word nation is the word ethnos. It's where we get our word ethnic or ethnicity. It's talking about race riots. For a nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That's talking about countries. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and deceive many because... And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now notice back up in verse 5, it says, There shall be many Christ come up, and many people claiming to be Christ. Many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. That's got to be talking about something other than people saying, I'm, I'm Jesus. Who's going to fall for that? 
if somebody showed up, no matter what they did, no matter what miracles they did or, or signs, wonders, or whatever, anybody that claims to be Jesus, that's kind of a red flag for the people that already are born again, isn't it? How is anybody going to fall for that? Well, he's got to be talking about something else then. He's got to be talking about people representing or misrepresenting, I should say, the work of God or what God is interested in. The misrepresentation of God's plan, God's purpose, is taking place around us right now. There are churches all over the country, perhaps even all over the world, that have shifted their focus, turned completely from what they were preaching or what they were doing a couple of months ago to what they're doing now. A lot of people are claiming that it's the work of God to change what they call the systematic racism of our country. Now, folks, where did Jesus or where did the plan of God change from preaching the word to preaching out against racism? Now, when you say things like this, there's a real it becomes real easy to step on people's toes and that's not my purpose I'm not trying to offend anybody but Paul talked about preaching the word Paul told Timothy to preach the word to be in, instant in season and out now at the time that Paul wrote these things the church was under great persecution or in other words we could say that the things that we read in, Re in Revelation chapter 12 we're taking place in their day just like it takes place in ours. That's part of a Facebook group of worship leaders around the country. And many of them, perhaps most of them, are young people. And the things that they come up with, the things that they think are important, and that God is wanting them to do in, in leading the church is just mind-boggling. It just leaves you scratching your head. Because now all of a sudden, God's purpose seems to be social justice rather than the preaching of the word. And of all the things that have taken place, The way things have changed, leaves you scratching your head in wonder. Here where it says, you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, we're living in a time of rumors. In other words, in my opinion, you judge it for yourself, but Jesus could have very easily said, and you shall hear of wars and fake news. That's what it is, isn't it? Isn't that what a rumor of a war would be? We live in a day of rumors. And it's left up to us to decide what's true and what's not.
We live in a day where the news media, the reporters of news, are trying to change or influence us to believe what they want us to believe, irrespective of the truth. News stories come out every day about the miscounting and misreporting of deaths from the coronavirus. But people are beginning to speak up. Doctors are beginning to speak up. Doctors have done tests and studies and have the experience of treating their patients with this hydroxychloroquine which is cheap and abundant, easily accessible. And it's something that the results are, are showing to be so positive that deaths by the coronavirus have been halted when this medication is used. Well, why shouldn't the medical community be jumping up and down saying, isn't this great? But instead, the people that are coming out with the reports are the ones that are being attacked. How did we get there? Folks, it all comes down to this. Satan's war against the church is aided by the fear of the people. And when people are fearful, they're easily manipulated and easily controlled. So since the first wave of coronavirus didn't turn out to be the disaster that everybody said that it was, it was certainly bad enough, and deaths, even the, the smallest number of deaths should be lamented. But since that first wave didn't do what it, they said that it would, they're trying to scare us into a second wave. Did you notice there, is, is it verse 5 or 6? You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. The word troubled there means frightened, controlled by fear. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, ethnic group against ethnic group and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Have you been keeping up with the news concerning the famines around the world? The coronavirus, because everybody's solution to it was locking down their economies. It's an undeniable reality that people will die of famines and food shortages because of the emphasis that was placed on and the actions that were taking place based on the coronavirus pandemic. The numbers that are estimated, the most conservative number that I've seen is over a million people will die of hunger because of the things regarding the coronavirus. So here's a man-made famine 
that's coming even as early as this fall. Pestilence is the word plague or disease. We certainly are seeing evidence of that now, and there may be others and more of them to come. There are reports, have been reports all along, I guess, about how that coronavirus patients, whether symptomatic or not, are being moved from one location to another location. There's a financial incentive for the uh, hospitals because any coronavirus case that's identified or anything that's identified as a new case of coronavirus gets government assistance for the hospital at $13,000 per person. If they need a ventilator, it, it triples. They get 39000 So there's a financial incentive to inflate the numbers in hospitals. Folks, there's something going on other than just a flu-like sickness or disease. There has to be more going on, and it's going on worldwide. Beth was reading an article to me. That's how we do in our house. Beth stays on her phone all day and reads to me every article that she comes across. <laughs> but anyway, she was reading an article where in Europe they're beginning to, to fight against the mask wearing stuff. Now, folks, isn't it interesting? We've had this stuff going on for about seven or eight weeks. Isn't it interesting that in those eight weeks, there has not been the time for one study to have been made to identify the effectiveness of wearing a mask? Not one. There has never been a study regarding the coronavirus that identifies that wearing a mask makes a difference. There are, however, there was, however, time enough to do studies to find out the adverse health benefits of wearing a mask. If it's the cure-all, if it's the fix, then why in the world haven't there been studies showing that it is the fix? Simple thing to do. We've got enough test cases now to be able to identify very easily whether they're beneficial or not. I think it's a precursor to the mark of the beast. Because the mark of the beast will be a requirement to buy and sell. Well, that's what's taking place with the, the mass thing now. I think God was very, very wise in setting things out so that the mark of the beast doesn't come. There's no opportunity for the mark of the beast to be taken by the church until after the rapture. 
And there will still be certain people on the earth that have gotten saved during the last three and a half years, the last half of the tribulation period. And so they might be ones that at least have the choice to make concerning the mark of the beast. But the church won't have that choice. Thank God the church won't have that choice. I've seen numerous things reported where Christians are speaking out as to the importance of wearing these masks. I saw a report the other day, and it made me think of Matthew chapter 24. I saw a report the other day where these two people were in conflict in a store. Both Christians. And one of them used Jesus as an example. And I thought about where it said, and many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ. When you get people starting to say, Jesus would wear a mask. <laughs> or Jesus would want you to wear a mask. Then folks, we're getting into pretty dangerous territory. Did you see that just a couple of days ago, the Portland situation where people have taken over part of the city and they burned courthouses and federal buildings and that kind of stuff. One night this last week, they were building their bonfire. They were burning Bibles along with the American flag. Now somebody tell me, what does the Bible have to do with anything regarding the riots? It's the devil waking, making war on the church. But that war won't work. It won't take hold unless you're afraid. Unless you're willing to change your ordinary course of life for the sake of doing what the left wants you to do. It's interesting to me that the Bible is written in a time where people, nobody, no peoples, had the opportunity to choose their own leaders. That is primarily, not quite exclusively, but primarily an American phenomenon. There's never been a nation on the face of the earth that's lasted as long as America has by choosing its own leadership. But the Bible was operating and formed during a time of persecution. So that much we can follow the, the Bible's example. Paul wrote to Timothy, second letter he wrote to him, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And apparently Paul had laid his hands on Timothy and imparted a spiritual gift to him. Well, folks, you can't give something you don't have. So whatever this gift was that Paul recommended to Timothy that he stir up, the gift of God which was placed upon you by the putting on of my hands. Apparently, Timothy was timid, and he wouldn't use what Paul had given to him by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. 
Now, it's quite possible because Timothy was such a close ministry partner and a member of his, Paul's ministry team, if you will. It's quite possible that Timothy was concerned about people saying that he was just copying Paul. But whatever the, the case, Paul admonishes Timothy to stir up the gift of God that's within you by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Timothy must have been afraid to use what Paul gave him. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Well, what does that tell us? It tells us that fear is the spirit and it's not of God. Fear is a spirit. Just as we might say that the spirit of God or the presence of God is peace and joy. The presence of the devil is fear. So Paul said, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now that word sound, when it's used sound mind, specifically means self-disciplined or controlled. So what Timothy is doing, unknowingly I'm sure, but what he's doing is he's failing to use the supernatural equipment that God has made available to him by the placing on of Paul's hands on Timothy. The impartation of some spiritual gift. I wish you told us what it was. But Timothy certainly knew, even if we don't. So where Paul says that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, the opposite of that or what God has given us is power and love and of a sound mind. The Bible talks about the soundness of mind in several places in the New Testament. And it usually uses the word sober. Be sober-minded. Now that word is not the same word that, uh, that's used when Paul wrote to Timothy. But that word for sober or sober-mindedness goes down to the root word which means not moved by fear or not moved by emotions. Now that seems to be easier for some of us than others. Some people based on their personality seems to have an easier time of keeping their emotions in check. Now, emotions are not bad things. They're given of God. And I rejoice with those of you that have them. But they make poor guides. Look with me to Matthew chapter 14. Beginning in verse 22, and straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with winds, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, 
Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is the Spirit, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And Jesus said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. One of the most interesting things about that I've found in some things that I've been believing for for a long time and some of the, the battles, some of the, the struggles that I've been engaged in with my physical health, particularly the um, diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. One of the things that I found particularly amazing during this battle is how the devil will try to tell you that you can't have the faith to do what you're already doing. That was the case here with Peter. What was the fear that came to Peter? That he couldn't walk on the water? He was walking on the water. One of the things the devil has tried to use against me is the one and only one condition that's identified regarding faith producing results for you, whether it's healing or anything else. In Mark chapter 11, when Jesus curses the fig tree and the disciples see the next morning that it's dried up from the roots, Jesus answers them and says, have faith in God or have the faith of God. And then goes on to explain how faith works in principle and in prayer. For whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Verse 24 then talks about faith in prayer. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Then verse 25 talks about the only condition, the only hindrance to your faith producing results. And when you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any, that your Father in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Well, since that's the only thing that the Bible identifies that can stop your faith from working, the devil has tried to use that as a means or an area of attack. What he fails to recognize, though, and he never will admit it, is that if I wasn't walking in love, if I wasn't walking in forgiveness, then my faith wouldn't produce the changes in the, the um, uh, occurrences that it already has. I've shared briefly about some of the things that I've, some of the symptoms that I've dealt with over the last nine years. There was a time where I could, didn't have the strength to hardly finish a service. I was believing God just to get through. 
Parkinson's affects your breathing in a great degree. And so there was a time, pretty long period of time really, where I had to focus on my breathing. Now that's hard to explain if you've never experienced something like that. I get how it's hard to understand. It was hard for me to relate to it too. But I found that when I was standing up in front of people, rather than my mind being focused on what I'm saying or what I'm going to say next, I was having to focus on getting a breath. Those were real difficult times for me. And there's only one thing that made the change and brought me out of those things, and that was my faith in God. My faith in his word that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we were healed. Well, folks, I'm walking in the same love and the same forgiveness now that I was walking in then. And it worked then, but the devil's telling me it won't work now. Now, I think we can all agree that the devil's an idiot. But he's a successful idiot in many cases. Because if people don't know, then that fear can keep them in bondage. Knowledge is the antidote for fear. Knowing who you are in Christ and knowing what belongs to you is the antidote for being afraid of what the devil says he's going to do. So Peter is experiencing something that's quite remarkable if you think about it. First of all, it's a miracle. It's a spectacular occurrence where he's walking on the water. But now the devil tells him, because the wind is boisterous, because the waves are high, the devil tells him that that's going to keep him from walking on the water. Well, they're not any higher now than when he first stepped out of the boat. The wind didn't pick up. It was already contrary. That's why they were having trouble rowing to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But the devil will use anything and everything that he can to make you think that what you've been given by God is not sufficient to put you over. And there could never be a bigger lie in all the world. God has already put you over. But when Peter saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore did thou doubt? Didst thou doubt? Why did you doubt, Peter? Now he says he had little faith. He says Peter had little faith. That little faith enabled him to walk on the water. But he changed. Peter made a change between the time that he got out of the boat and when Jesus rescued him. Peter changed. The word of God didn't change. Jesus wasn't any different. Jesus didn't say, okay, that's enough for you. Peter's the one that changed. Now, folks, the devil's efforts can only be successful if he inspires you or influences you to change. 
Let me show you another example over in Mark chapter 5. Verse 21, And when Jesus was passed over again by ship to the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? In other words, everybody's touching him. And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now, folks, this could have been a, a great occurrence in the eyes of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. This could have been something where Jairus got excited about and said, well, he's obviously got the power today because that power healed this woman of an incurable disease. But what happens next has the potential to just shatter Jairus' world. I'm sure Jairus is in a hurry to get Jesus to his house. I doubt if Jairus has given any thought whatsoever to the faith that would be needed to raise his daughter from the dead if Jesus doesn't make it in time. I'm more inclined to believe that Jairus is doing everything that he can to hurry Jesus along. But they're having to fight their way through the crowd. They're going at a snail's pace already because of the multitudes that are thronging Jesus. So that when Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Jesus knows that somebody touched him differently than anybody else. Jesus knows that faith has drawn the power of God to heal from him to somebody else. He just doesn't know who it is. Now, folks, that dispels the idea that Jesus knew everything there was on the earth. That dispels the idea that Jesus was operating on the earth as the Son of God rather than the Son of Man. Because one of the characteristics of God is that he's all-knowing. So when Jesus asked the question, who touched me? He's identifying that he doesn't know who it is. I doubt if he has much concern about finding out who it is because it'd be real easy to identify somebody that got something as severe or something the power to overcome something as severe as what she's been dealing with for 12 years 
But notice while Jesus is saying to the woman, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and behold of thy plague. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? Can't you relate to the father? Can you imagine the panic that would grip your heart? But notice what happens next. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. Be not afraid, only believe. Now Jesus doesn't tell him that he's going to have to believe something new. Jesus doesn't explain to him that he was believing for healing uh, to begin with, but now he's got to believe for the raising of the dead, and that's a whole different story. Jesus doesn't tell Jairus that he needs to make more confessions. And he doesn't tell Jairus not to feel fear. When he says, be not afraid, only believe. He knows that fear is attacking Jairus' mind. He knows that's the way the devil works. It's the way he works with all of us. So what Jesus says to him is don't let the fear cause you to take action. Don't let the emotion of fear rob from you what your faith is already taking hold of from God the Father. This is the moment of truth, folks. If Jairus says something or does something, or even if he begins to cry about what he's afraid the situation is now and never will change, talking about the death of his daughter, Jesus simply says, be not afraid. Stay in faith. Only believe. Well, what does that do? It said that he came to the house. He turned everybody back except Peter and James and John. He came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he said unto them, Why make you this ado and weep? The The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he took the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him, Peter, James, and John, and entered in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha Kumai, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years, and they were astonished with a great astonishment. Now who was astonished? Well, the only ones in the room are the mom and the dad, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. So we have to assume that they meant the disciples, Peter, James, and John, along with the parents. Now, what would cause them to be astonished? Well, they clearly weren't believing for the raising of the dead of their daughter. But what did they believe? Well, if you go back and look at what Jairus had said, He said, come to my house and lay your hands on my daughter that she may live and not die. They were believing for her to keep living. But it was very important for them not to get into this mental contest about how it was going to work. 
Because if they're going to get into the how it's going to work, they're already sunk. They were believing for Jesus to make it before she died, knowing full well that she's at the point of death. But they were believing for Jesus to make it before she died so that she wouldn't go through the death that she experienced. Folks, this is a great example to live by. This is a great story to keep in mind. When things look like they go against what you're believing for, when things appear to get worse, I can't tell you how many times people have come to me and said, Pastor Mike, I want you to pray for me. Pray for my healing. I'm going to the doctor about this, that, or the other, whatever the circumstance is. So we'll pray. A lot of times people want me to pray that the doctor won't find anything. And I don't have faith for that. There's no scripture that gives you that kind of promise. But oftentimes they'll come back a week later just downcast and disheartened and say the doctor found this. And I'll simply say, so. And they're shocked because the doctor found something and I'm acting like it's no big deal. But I'll always ask them, how does that change the word? Is God any different this week than he was for you last week? Is his healing power and his healing mercy less today than it was this time last week? How does that change anything? A lot of times the doctor's diagnosis can give you information about what to believe for. There's no unbelief in that. And when people start to meditate on the fact that God hadn't changed just because the doctor found something, then they're left with only his word. And I've seen people come through time after time after time because they're not afraid of what the doctor found anymore. Folks, Jesus said in John chapter 8, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The knowledge that overcomes fear is the knowledge of the truth contained in the word of God. If, you're, if you and I are going to make it in these last days, we're going to have to make it on the foundation of what God's word says. Now I want you to turn with me finally to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This is one of my favorite parts of the Bible. Favorite stories. Because it shows us the kind of people and the kind of prayers that God answers. Verse 1, it came to pass after this also <clears throat> that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them others beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. And there came some that told Jehoshaphat saying, there cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria and behold they be in some place which is in Gedi. <clears throat> and Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even of all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. 
Notice this is how they, help, they cried out to God for help. This is the kind of prayer that gets help. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, art thou not God in heaven? And rulest thou not over the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thy hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Folks, the Bible says in the Old Testament, God told his people to put me in remembrance. In other words, he's telling the people of the Old Covenant to pray the word of God. That's what they're doing here. They're showing God that they believe. They know what he said. They know who he's claimed to be. And that's who they believe him to be. But it sounds to the uneducated listener, it can at least sound like he's being arrogant in the way that he's praying. But folks, just to let you in on a secret, he gets results. This is the kind of praying that gets results. He doesn't come lying on his face, crawling to the altar, begging God to do something. He simply comes before God and his own people and says, now wait a minute, God, didn't you, aren't you the one that said that you're the creator of the universe? Aren't you the one that said that you're the most high God and there's no limit to your power? Isn't that what you said? Folks, it seems that Jehoshaphat understood that God gave his word to his people to be used as a weapon when needed. I think too many people are looking at the Bible like it's supposed to be a book that provides a little bit of comfort. Now, since they never get their prayers answered, it's not a lot of comfort. But maybe, just maybe, God will help us in our feelings while we're in this great tribulation. Folks, if that was the kind of prayer that Jehoshaphat would have prayed, nothing would have happened. He goes on to say, Art thou not our God, who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gave it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? Haven't you already delivered the promised land to us once? Did you give us the promised land expecting it to be taken away from us by these people or somebody else? Is God's power just available or sufficient to give you the promised land but not to keep it? And they dwelt therein and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil comes upon us, as the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we stand before this house and in, the presence, in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. Now, folks, notice the things that he says. If when evil comes upon us as with the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, pestilence and famine were in, uh, uh, mentioned in Matthew 24, when Jesus was telling them some of the signs of the times. He talked about famines, pestilence, same word, plagues, diseases. And Jesus added earthquakes in Matthew 24. Well, if this kind of praying, and as we know, the end of the story is Jehoshaphat's prayer is answered. 
if this kind of praying overcomes pestilence and famine in their day, then why would it not overcome pestilence and famine in our day? Has God changed? Did he care more about Israel than he cares about you and me and the church? Verse 10. And now, behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir. Only now does he begin to tell what the problem is. Before then, he's talking about God and what God had promised to do. And now, behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. I like that, folks. Now, the promised land is a type of the blessings that belong to us as, as believers in Jesus. The promised land is not a type of heaven. There won't be any giants to fight in heaven. The promised land is a, is a type of the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the healing power of God, supernatural provision, that's what the promised land is a type of. And Jehoshaphat calls the promised land, which is a type of what belongs to the church, the possession of God. But when did it stop being the possession of God? These are things that belong to us and will always belong to us because of what Jesus accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, the devil will tell you just like he was telling them. You don't have the military strength to stand against these kings and their armies. And, folks, the devil is right on that. All we've got is God. which I'm sure a lot of people would be willing to trade for bigger armies. But all we've got is the creator of the universe. That's all. Behold how they reward us to come to cast us out of that possession which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. Folks, I want you to understand something. God wants you delivered more than you want to be delivered. God wants you healed more than you want to be healed. God wants you to be provided for more than you want to be provided for. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, Hearken ye all Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord God unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed by the reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. When did the battle stop being God's? 
When did your trouble, your affliction, your adversity quit being God's responsibility to see you through? Every battle we face, every test that we face, every adversity that comes against us, those battles are God's. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have a part. It doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility to believe in or to take hold of by faith. But the battle is the Lord's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Again, he's not saying don't feel emotion. See, the devil tries to make us afraid and then makes us feel condemned for being afraid or feeling afraid, feeling fear. That's not how it works. God knows that our bodies are dust. The feeling of fear is not the issue. It's not the problem. And it by itself can never stop you. The question is, what are you going to do when the feelings of fear come? Jesus said to Jairus, be not afraid, only believe. Don't let the fear that you're feeling influence your actions or your words. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord God, your God, so shall you be established. Believe as prophet, so shall you prosper. And when they had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, that they should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Folks, why do you think that the governor of California has said that we can't sing? Because singing is the means of our victory. Somebody said praise is the highest type of faith. And isn't it just coincidental? I mean, shucks. One of the things they said churches can't do is sing. Now, there's, a, there's a, another time in Israel's history where it was very similar. When Israel was being held captive or taken away, led into captivity in Babylon, it says that the Babylonians who had conquered Israel said to the, to the people of Israel, sing us some of your songs. Israel was known for their songs. The book of Psalms, what we know of is the book of Psalms is actually five books it's Israel's songbook or songbooks. And so when the people of Babylon, the, the military forces of Babylon, when they asked Israel to sing some of their songs to them, Israel said, can you sing the songs of victory in captivity? How can this be done? And it says they hang their harps on the willows. In other words, they refused to sing. Now, when the devil brings you into a bad place, 
an adverse circumstance. One of the things he's trying to steal from you, not just your voice, not just your words, but your songs. And Israel fell right into their trap. Israel said, we can't sing when we're in captivity. So they gave up the greatest weapon that they had. Don't be like them. Let your songs of victory be ever heard, even if you're the only one that hears them. It's not important that you hear me singing songs of victory. It's important that I hear me singing songs of victory. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord and that they should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. And when they began to sing and to praise, notice when these things took place. God said the battle is not yours, it's his. But it didn't become his in reality until they began to sing and to praise. Life is like a checkers game. God won't move out of turn. The people cried unto God. God answered. God told them what to do. The people of Israel went out to do it. And God answered. When they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, utterly to slay and to destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. One of God's favorite tactics in the Old Testament was the people, the enemies of Israel, fighting against themselves. I wonder if God's through with doing things like that. I'm looking forward to a lot of people that are enemies of God and enemies to the people of God fighting and devouring each other. When Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, behold, they looked unto the multitude, and behold, there were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels which they stripped off for themselves, more than they could carry away. And they were three days in gathering of the spoil. It was so much. Now, folks, this is how God is. The people of Israel asked God for deliverance against these five enemy kings and their armies. God not only gave them the victory, they never had to throw a spear shoot an arrow, or even throw a rock. And God enriched them in greater measures than any other time in their history, with the possible exception of when they came out of Egypt. That's how God is. God's not interested in squeak-by victories. God's interested in great victories. 
Now, people that know that that's the God that they serve, the people that know that that's the Father that we have in heaven, they're not worried about a puny little virus. I'm going to read to you a couple of scriptures from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 14. In righteousness thou shalt be established, for thou shalt be far from oppression. For or because... Fear shalt, thou shalt not fear. And you'll be far away from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Verse 17. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. I've taken those three scriptures and made a cocktail out of them. I do not fear for God is with me. I am not dismayed, for he is my God. You strengthen me, you help me, you uphold me with the right hand of your righteousness. And in that righteousness I am established. Oppression does not come near me, for I do not fear. And terror shall be far from me. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against me in judgment I do condemn. This is my inheritance as a child of God, and my righteousness is of God. Folks, you're free from fear. You're delivered from fear. You overcome fear only to the degree which you say so. It's one thing to say casually, I'm not afraid. It's another thing to con confess that you will not fear because of God's power with you and in you. So I'll say it again. Fear, the antidote to fear is knowledge. And you are free from fear only to the degree that you say you are. And you need to actively say you are. It's not knowing that those verses are there. It's speaking over those verses to yourself. That's what puts you over. That's what puts you over. And I'll tell you this. You can't say those things about yourself very long before you start singing the praise of God. Those scriptures as much or more than any others that I've ever found inspire me to sing and to praise God no matter what takes place. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that we have not been given a spirit of fear. But instead, you've given us power over the enemy. You've given us the spirit of love, whereby all men will know we're your disciples. And you've given us soundness of mind. Father, you said the Holy Ghost would guide us into all truth. The knowledge of that truth from your word is the source of our victory. It's that which holds us steady.
you said, Lord, that you'd keep us in perfect peace because our minds are stayed on you, because we trust you. So, Lord, no matter what takes place in this world around us, a thousand may fall at our right hand and 10,000 at our left, but no plague will come nigh our dwelling. There is not any trouble, there is not any conflict, there is not any work of the devil that will take hold of us because you're on our side. So we declare that we're free from fear. We say that we will not fear no matter what. Lord, we bless you and we thank you that because you want our victory more than we want our victory, you've made a way, a sure way, for us to walk in victory. And as the fruit of our lips continually praises you, we thank you, Father, that we go through this earth, we spend the remainder of our days, the remainder of the last days, walking in complete and total victory. No matter what it looks like, no matter how we feel, we say that victory is ours in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father, that we are the healed of God. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our healer. We thank you that you are our provider. And no matter what happens with the economy, Father, you take care of us. Particularly, you take care of this church family. Because we are doers of your word. We bless your holy name, Father. We thank you for your great plan of redemption. And Father, even as we want to see Jesus come back, we know that there's still work left to do. And we take comfort in the fact that you desire for us to be in your presence more than we even desired ourselves. So Holy Spirit, we thank you for equipping us to finish the last day work, to bring in the precious fruit of the earth that we might be ever with our Lord. In Jesus' name.